Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. Today we have a very exciting special episode of Breakpoints because we are coming at you live from the Making a Difference in Infectious Diseases Conference, or MADID, that was held in Orlando, Florida at the beginning of May 2023. I had the honor of presenting updates in ID literature and top updates from ID conferences in the past year. We're talking about June 2022 through about March of 2023, so everything since the last Mad ID conference, with my good friend, Dr. Jason Pogue. Jason is a professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy, and he's an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Michigan Medicine. He is a past president of SIDP and the current chair of the executive committee of USCAST and just was on Breakpoints doing a fabulous series on Breakpoints that I encourage you to check out. But he joined me on the stage at the MAD-ID conference to present this literature update. And so we are thrilled to bring it to you today. So with no further ado, we'll jump to our recording live. We hope you guys enjoy. All right, good morning, everyone. Thank you to everyone who stuck around to spend the next 90 minutes with Jason and myself as we go on this journey. We are going through the ID literature over the last year, June 2022 to about March 2023 of published literature. We are not including anything that was covered in another session at this conference, and then we're not doing anything COVID, you're welcome. Nothing hep C or HIV. We do have some peed stuff, though. So yeah, so we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, but some really good stuff that we're not going to discuss today. We do recommend these papers. A lot of them were discussed earlier in this conference. That's the reason we're not talking about them. But I want to call out two that I want you to maybe take a look at in particular. If you look at the SGD, so Selective Gut Decontamination, a very interesting paper suggests looking at its association with mortality and mechanical ventilation. There was no significant finding in that trial, but boy, there were a lot of hints at a benefit. So I want you to take a look at that and pay attention to that space because I think that's very cool and you might see something there in the future in a few years moving forward. Then post-exposure doxy to prevent bacterial sexually transmitted infections. Very important study. Again, we had to make calls. We couldn't go through every single thing, but this is likely going to change practice. And there's some caveats in those data that you need to take a look at. So we would really recommend that. The other things that I would call out, there's a couple of myth busters in there that you're going to want to look at. And if you really want to hear about cefazolin for CNS infections, and it's a nice little myth bust, we're not going to talk about it here. But my esteemed colleague here will be talking about it at ID Week. So go see her give that presentation there. So before we dive in, we have some VIPs in the house today that need to be acknowledged. So everybody join me in welcoming Aaron's parents. Ken and Chrissy McCurry are here. They drove in to support their daughter, and that is absolutely amazing. That is great. I'm so glad you're here. I got to talk with Ken a little bit before this. So I'm from Pittsburgh. They're Pittsburghers. And so we had these great conversations about the Steelers, the Penguins. I love seeing you on Twitter with your expletive Tom Brady shirt, because I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. But there is one place that maybe you don't get it right. The best university in the area is the University of Pittsburgh, the greatest university that exists. But anyway, thanks for coming. Really, I think it's really cool that you're here. And I just want to say, I think on behalf of everybody here, that you raised an amazing daughter. She is very, yes, look at this. 
Like, that's clapping for all of you. Like, she is very impactful in patient care. People are alive today because of what she does. And so very well done. I didn't know Jason was going to say that. Also, my parents went to West Virginia. If you guys are like, I don't get the joke. They both went to WVU, so there's a big pit thing there. All right, I probably I'm embarrassed fine. you enough, so yeah, you can probably go ahead and move Is it my turn forward. now? I'm all flustered. Do I go? Oh, yeah, I do go now. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, so this is how we're going to walk through this talk. So randomized clinical trials or controlled trials, depending on what journal you're trying to publish in, they care about that. Um, and so we're going to walk through published RCTs first. Then we're going to go through the ECMID late breakers, which are also all RCTs, some stewardship content, and then some other important stuff, basically things we thought were cool that didn't fit into a category. So let's start talking about the randomized clinical slash controlled trials first. The first one was two versus seven days of levofloxacin for COPD exacerbations. This trial was done at four emergency departments in northern Africa. They enrolled patients who were 45 years of age or older who had at least a 10-year pack history of smoking who were presenting to the ED with a mild to moderate acute exacerbation. They excluded patients who had a creatinine clearance less than 40, patients that were active alcohol or drug users, any patient clinically unstable requiring vasopressors, and any patient with legit confirmed pneumonia who probably required admission and pneumonia courses of antibiotics. They were randomized to get levofloxacin 500 milligrams a day for two doses, and then they got five days of a placebo pill, or they got seven days of levofloxacin active medication. All of these patients also received a PRED burst of 40 milligrams for five days, as well as bronchodilator support and other standard supportive care for COPD. Now, something that's kind of interesting logistically about this study is when they presented to the ED, if you were randomized into the trial, you're actually held in the ED for two days. I guess you got two days of observation, and then you could actually get admitted, and they looked at that. If patients ended up warranting admission, they got sicker, or they went home. The vast majority of patients were able to go home. And at first I was like, that's kind of weird. Why would I hold patients in the ED? And then I remembered, oh, I practice in the United States of America, and all of our patients are sitting in the ED <laughs> for two days or more, at least if your hospitals are like mine. So this actually probably tracks, and we'll talk about some ops stuff when we get to the punchline. But the authors define cure as complete resolution of exacerbation symptoms within 30 days with no relapse or recurrence. You can see there was no difference there. Then they looked at a bunch of secondary outcomes. So did they need additional antibiotics? Did they end up going to the ICU when they got admitted? Did they have an exacerbation within a year? There was no statistical difference in any of these secondary outcomes between two days and seven days. 6% more patients ended up having an exacerbation within a year. That's not statistically significant. You could argue that's meaningful to your healthcare resources, that's meaningful to a patient. But interestingly, numerically less people died in a year, and so maybe those balance out, I'm not sure. But overall, we found that two days is equal to seven days in this setting. So what do we do with this trial? What is the take-home message? I think that we now have randomized evidence to show that two days of levofloxacin is non-inferior to seven days in terms of cure rate, need for additional antibiotics, and all other secondary outcomes for acute COPD exacerbations. They did use the 500 milligram dose. I think most of us use 750. Maybe I'm wrong, but 750 is the pneumonia dose. 750 is the pseudomonas dose. 750 is the dose if you look at CLSI. So that's something to note. And then the best line in this entire publication is in the discussion, the authors literally wrote this statement. This is a direct quote. It may be argued that shorter courses were found to be as effective as longer courses because perhaps antibiotics are largely ineffective at any dose. Wow, they liked that one. That's, That's like, good. 
they wrote that. I, I read that sentence twice. I was like, oh my, I'm putting that in the slide. I mean, th so perhaps that is true, right? Although I will say they actually did get cultures and, and the micro tracked with what we expect in community acquired pneumonia. 58% of the patients had strep pneumo and then Haemophilus influenza and chlamydia pneumonia. So there's bacteria going on there. So I, don't, I wouldn't even be bold enough to write that sentence, but kudos to the authors. And so how do I put this into context? Do I bring this home and give two days of antibiotics if my patients, quote, gold into antibiotic therapy by their symptoms and whatnot? Let's look at the 2023 gold guidelines because those also came out this year. So a great one-two punch of new literature here. So the gold guidelines for looking at COPD as a whole, it's like a 200-page document. It's really nice. Thank you to the panel who put this together. However, despite this beautiful update this year, the antibiotic section is still amazingly vague and largely unhelpful. So what this reads, nothing's changed in this practice. If you have three cardinal symptoms or two plus increased purulence, then you should get antibiotics per the standard. And the recommended length of therapy in this new document is five to seven days of therapy. Now, these were published before the trial, but that recommendation, the reference for it, is a previous RCT for levofloxacin looking at five versus seven days. And they used that data to show there's no difference to make this global rec for any antibiotic that the duration is five to seven days. They do have this extra caveat that you can give less than or equal to five days if they're stable and they can go home outpatient. There's no reference for that statement. And so this trial was only done looking at fluoroquinolones, but that duration is something, we've only used fluoroquinolone data to stay duration for all antibiotics. Whether that's appropriate or not, I don't know. I think we typically give five days of amoxclav, doxy. What I think you can definitely do is take this home and say, if you're using a fluoroquinolone, two days is good enough. I know you guys are leaving this meeting like, man, they've talked about fluoroquinolones a lot, <laughs> which we kind of have. But sometimes you need to use them, and I mean, patients might have legit amoxclav, Amoxicillin allergies, and the oral third-generation cephalosporins are really bad pharmacokinetically for pneumonias, and so sometimes I don't have a good option for a true penallergic patient, and so I think this is nice to say two days of a fluoroquinolone is good to go, and oral therapy is fine. Okay, the next trial is my favorite thing ever, so I'm going to do this, and then we're just going to be done, because nothing is better than talking about CMV. The next trial, this was an ID Week 2022 late breaker. It was looking at latermavir versus valgancyclovir for the prevention of CMV disease in high-risk kidney transplant patients. So this is where your donor is CMV positive and you as the transplant recipient are CMV negative. That makes you very high risk for developing disease. Standard care in solid organ transplantation right now across all organs is universal prophylaxis, meaning everyone receives some kind of antiviral therapy, usually for about 100 days. That's very different than cell transplantation, wherein almost no one receives antiviral prophylaxis. They do something called preemptive monitoring, where you just check PCRs, and then if they have CMV, you treat. When latermavir first came to market a couple years ago, it was studied in that cell transplant population, and they found that for recipient-positive patients, cell transplant is reverse, right, from getting an organ versus getting someone else's immune system. So in cell transplant, recipient positive is high risk, and latermavir was found to be better than preemptive monitoring in those settings, so it became standard care in that population. Ergo, the desire to now study it in solid organ transplantation. And it's particularly nice in kidneys because latermavir is not renal dose adjusted, and kidney transplantation, especially immediately post-op, Renal function's all over the place if you've ever taken care of one of these patients. So meds that are renal dose adjusted like valgancyclovir are incredibly challenging. 
So these authors went into this saying, I bet Latermavir is just as good as Valgan for prevention and it might be safer. They ran to my 601 patients, about half of those patients received lymphocyte depleting induction with either Campath or Thymo, so they're really immunosuppressed. And they did this all over the world. And they looked at the primary endpoint of CMV disease through 28 weeks and then at a year, so this is the 52 week mark, and there was no difference. So Latermavir was non-inferior to Valgancyclovir in preventing CMV disease. This held true for all pre-specified subgroups, including patients that got lymphocyte depleting induction. And less patients in the Latermavir arm had to discontinue the study before a year, but they did have a 90% retention rate, which is pretty great. But why did they discontinue? So let's look at that safety signal. So the main things were the myelosuppression that we see with gancyclovir and valgancyclovir. They defined leukopenia as a white blood cell count less than 3.5, neutropenia as an ANC less than 1,000. 37% of the valgancyclovir patients developed leukopenia. 37%. Compared I'm to, sorry. Compared to 16%. That's a lot, okay? Uh, compared to 16% in the Latermavir group, and then neutropenia was something like 16% versus 2% maybe. I don't remember the exact numbers, but huge difference in myelosuppression. That Kaplan-Meier curve is very wide. It starts to split about two months after transplant and continues to be a consistent trend through 28 weeks. 7% of the patients in the Valiant Cyclovir arm also required GCSF, whereas only 1.7% in the Latermavir arm you too, that's meaningful because GCSF is like giving a whole nother treatment. You get a fever, then they get antibiotics, it's chaos. Um, so the Latermavir arm was much safer. So the <coughs> conclusion of this trial is Latermavir is non-inferior to Valgan in terms of prevention, and it is safer. So to me, to Aaron, these are practice-changing data. If I got a kidney transplant and I was DPOS R minus, I would want Latermavir. We will talk ourselves in circles and twist ourselves in pretzels to not do this because Latermavir is very costly, and I appreciate that. There's a huge implication if they're in the hospital for a long time over the course of all those transplants to my drug budget. Kidneys usually do well and leave the hospital pretty quickly, and with these kinds of data, hopefully payers will pay this in the outpatient space, but this conversion won't be immediate because of that health economic implication. But then when you take into account all the other drugs they had to get, all their toxicities, not having neutrophils is like not good if you don't want to get a fungal infection and other things. Um, so to me, these are practice-changing data, but I think it'll be hard to implement. I know we're already having this discussion at my center. That was great for Aaron. Aaron loves CMV, like to a bizarre degree. And so that was really great that she got to do that. Now, I actually get to talk something that I like in a kind of a weird way, too. And that's steroids and severe cap. The problem with steroids for severe community-acquired pneumonia is that there's a lot of hints in the literature that there's a benefit. Time to resolution, getting better faster, a lot of hints but very small studies looking at this question. Underpowered, never a mortality benefit. Enter the Cape Cod study that came out earlier this year in New England Journal of Medicine. If you heard me say the Cape Cod study and you got nightmare flashbacks, that's because this is the same group that did one of the steroids for COVID. In fact, this trial was put on hold because they had to stop enrolling patients into it because it went into the COVID trial instead. So it's the same group of authors, and so you're going to see the endpoints are very similar. So you are going to get a little bit of angina when I show you the results of this study because you're going to see all these 
progression of illness stuff that's going to make you just unhappy. And so I apologize in advance. But this is a study in 800 patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia, and more than half of them actually had a bacterial isolate. Not surprisingly, number one pathogen was the pneumococcus, followed by Legionella and staph. But basically, what's really cool about this study, in my opinion, so you see the definition of severe cap there, but what they did is when a patient met those criteria, went to the ICU, they had to be enrolled in this trial within 24 hours from presentation. So that's awesome, because you're really looking at the time where an intervention is going to make an impact. And if you actually look at the results, the average time from ICU presentation to enrollment was 15 hours. So very well done. And they randomized patients to get one or two things. Hydrocortisone as a continuous infusion, 200 milligrams a day, or placebo for four days. However, the therapy actually extended beyond four days. So basically, depending on your oxygen status on day four, you either tapered right off and completed eight total days, or you got a few more days and then tapered so you could get up to 14 days. The other thing to note in this is that if you left the ICU, so you obviously responded, you're getting better, they stopped when you left the ICU. So what you'll actually find is on average, they got five days of therapy with hydrocortisone or placebo in this study. So know the population. So again, I think that this is really important to always, when you're looking at these studies, is to see how it fits with who you're treating. And the thing that I would bring to your attention is pretty sick patients. You have 45% of them requiring mechanical ventilation, half of which was invasive, half of which was non-invasive. You see a big chunk of patients who needed high-flow nasal cannula, again, something that wasn't in a lot of our vocabularies three years ago before we became high-flow experts thanks to the, the awfulness that happened uh, back then, and then some on the non-rebreather. So these are sick patients. So again, a really good population to ask this question. So what were the outcomes? And, and Aaron, I hope you appreciate this slide. So Aaron said Jason I had to make... worked really hard on this slide. I had to make pretty <laughs> slides for y'all. This is not something... Like, I don't even want to tell you how long it took me to make this slide. It's quite embarrassing. <laughs> he worked really hard, so soak it up, take some pictures, tweet it. Well, you said your parents were going to be... I know. I mean, come I, on, it's a beautiful slide. Did, did, I'm impressed you know what icons are. So <laughs> that was good. Thank I like that. All right, so primary outcome was 28-day mortality. And boom, that's an effect right there, huh? You almost halved it with the use of hydrocortisone. And that held true out to 90-day mortality. So that's pretty impactful. That's a big-time impact. If you look at the middle, all of those progression, progression to mechanical ventilation if they weren't on it, needing intubated if they hadn't already been intubated, or needing pressors if they weren't already on pressors, all of those significantly improved with hydrocortisone. But we have to look at safety when we're talking about corticosteroids as well, right? We're concerned for potential secondary infections. No difference. There's concern for potential GI bleed. Nothing. There was an increase in the need for insulin requirements, but I would argue that I will trade that for dropping mortality by 45%. Seems like a pretty good deal in that situation. So the question that comes up, maybe, yes. <laughs> so do these change practice? Again, I would say that this is an extremely compelling study. This is convincing data to me. 800 patients showing that benefit. And like I said before, the data before this 
largely supported this. It was just a small study. In fact, if you want to look back to me talking about this two years ago, we had a cap episode of Breakpoints where we talked about this very issue. And I tried to make the argument before this even existed that we should be doing this. And so I find this pretty compelling. You probably didn't listen to the steroid part because he was ranting about ceftaroline. But... I did rant about ceftaroline. Yeah, you probably missed the steroids in there. Way to make me look bad. <laughs> all right. While that all sounds great, I can't ignore the fact that there was another study that came out in 2021 from the VA. This was looking at methylpred, 21 days of therapy. It's a very long course for severe community-acquired pneumonia. Again, they had different definitions. Obviously, the VA population is a little bit different. They didn't get patients started as quickly as they did in this trial. But in that study, it actually had to stop early due to slow enrollment, even though they did have about 550 patients in the trial. And they were unable to show a statistically significant decrease. Now, do I know that that wouldn't have played out had they enrolled the amount that they wanted? I don't know the answer to that question. But I have to, for completeness sake, say it's not all gravy. Not everything is beautiful in this space. So how do we reconcile this? The way I think about this, and Aaron and I were talking about it when we were preparing for this, I kind of think about this the same way that I think about steroids for pneumococcal meningitis, right? If you think about it, we routinely give it, the data are either positive or neutral. There's no signal of harm, and in my opinion, the best data are really positive looking. So I, Jason, think these change what we do in patients, and I would give hydrocortisone. And it might be a steroid thing too, right? Maybe methylpred doesn't work and hydrocortisone does. I don't know that. But who cares what I think, right? Let's actually ask experts what they think about this as well. So interestingly enough, at a similar time frame, this actually came out in April, so this was the European Guidelines on the Management of Severe Community-Acquired Pneumonia. There's a lot of acronyms there. It's the respiratory group, it's the ICU group, and it's the ID group. And then there's a Latin American component to it at the end as well. So they came out with recommendations, or suggestions, if you will, related to severe CAP. And what did they say? They said that in patients who have shock, we suggest the use of corticosteroids. And again, you might say, well, they're only suggesting it and only in patients who have shock. But here's the thing. This recommendation took into account the VA study that was negative and didn't take into account what I just showed you. So if they were already suggesting it in this place, you can imagine what would happen once they incorporate Cape Cod. While we're on this document, I might as well comment on two other things that they recommend as well for severe community-acquired pneumonia. So if you look at the guidelines, and I know we talk about this and joke about it sometimes, but if you look at the guidelines, what do they say for patients in the ICU? They say beta-lactam in combination with either a macrolide or a fluoroquinolone. And everyone always wonders where that quinolone piece comes from in that scenario. But in this document, they actually suggest choosing a macrolide. And I think that's a pretty good suggestion because there's some observational data that suggests that giving combination therapy with a macrolide in these patients, again, it might be related to the antibiotic activity. It might be the magic effects of the macrolide that can come as well. But there are data that suggest reduced mortality, and they therefore recommend it. And the other thing I'll just comment on real quickly, and I take that back, they suggest it. I got to get my words right when I'm talking about these documents. Um, the other thing that I would just comment on, they also talk about Tamiflu, and they also suggest that in patients who have it. So I will encourage you to take a look at this document in a little bit more detail, but nice support for different recommendations for treating severe community-acquired pneumonia. All right. 
So we're going to move into the ECMID late breakers now. So we're going to walk through four randomized trials that were presented at ECMID. Disclaimer, and I think this is important. These are oral abstracts. These are authors that submitted work. And I, if you all submitted ID Week abstracts last week, you know you're doing it at 11.59.59, right before the submission deadline. Like, you may or may not switch a five for a six. We are human. Abstract data is usually down to the wire to get in. And so these are abstracts that the ECMID conference read. So these are excellent. They need to be orals. The authors got 12 slides and 10 minutes to present these. So all we know is that presentation and that content. These are not peer reviewed. These are not final. And I think that's important because we love sharing these with you guys, and we're just reiterating what we heard from the authors with our interpretation of what we know now. So just want to lay that disclaimer before we go into this. All right, so let's get into those data. And so this is a study that I was really excited about when I saw we were going to be at the session where they presented this. So this is the REGARD-VAP trial, and basically the goal of this was to reduce antibiotic duration for ventilator-associated pneumonia. What I like to think of this study is as applying cap rules to VAP. So basically what they did is patients were in the ICU with VAP, they monitored them daily, and as soon as they met the stability criteria, again, they're a little bit different in this trial, but generally, similarly to what we do with community-acquired pneumonia, when they were afebrile for 48 hours, no more, actually, they just said hemodynamic stability when they presented this, they randomized the patients to one of two arms. One arm was, you stop. And that could be as few as three days if patients had negative cultures, or five days if they had positive cultures. Or the other arm was, do whatever you want to do. The long course therapy, they had to give at least eight days, but it was up to the treating physician. So if you remember the original CAP studies that got us to what we do today, really the same design. And I think that's really cool, because again, pneumonia is pneumonia. And so I always thought that this would be a really exciting study design. So I was really excited to go to this presentation. Their outcomes for VAP, 60-day mortality or recurrence is a composite, that's a good one. But then they also looked at a bunch of duration of different things, hospitalization, ventilation, again, anything else that could be improved with one therapy over another. Of note, it's always important to know who they exclude from these trials. So basically, really sick people and immunocompromised patients. Also pretty consistent with pneumonia literature. So what do I want you to know about this population? Remember, as Aaron said very smartly, this is preliminary, so don't go quoting this as the final be-all, end-all. But what I want you to know, because whenever you're looking at these trials, you've got to make sense of if it's your population, if it's consistent with what you see. So a couple things I would highlight. The median time that they were on the ventilator at time of randomization was two weeks. So think about how that relates to your general VAP patient. The microbiology, there were almost no gram positives in this study. 40% of patients had non-fermenters, and it was split pretty evenly between Pseudomonas and Acinetobacter. There were a few stenos, but largely those two. And the resistance rates, there was some significant carbapenem resistance in there as well. 30% of patients had Enterobacter rallies, and a bunch of them, because this study took place in Thailand and in Singapore, there's a high rates of third generation cephalosporin resistance and even a, a decent chunk of carbapenem resistance in the Enterobacter alleys. And then you can see about 20% of patients were culture negative. So per their algorithm, 20% of patients would have been eligible to stop at day three. So again, their intervention was to stop versus continue. So you can see the median duration of therapy there, six days in the intervention group, 
14 days in the do-whatever-you-want group. So what did they find? So were they safely able to stop that or lower that duration of therapy? If you look on this slide, you won't see any differences between the two groups. That being said, you should also look at the numbers on this slide. Look at those rates of 60-day mortality or recurrence. You're talking 45-ish percent. Look at the secondary outcomes below with duration of hospitalization, about two months after being enrolled in the trial. They were on the vent for six to seven weeks on average after treatment of their infection. So again, ask yourself if that's consistent with the patients that you're taking care of for ventilator-associated pneumonia. It's not for me. So what does it mean? What do I take from this? Well, I think it's a really cool question. And I'd actually really like to see more of these data, particularly in HAP, not VAP, because those patients get better a lot faster. And there's, there shouldn't be anything fundamentally different from CAP in those patients. So I think this is an exciting study question. I think the results suggest that CAP rules may apply to VAP. However, I think you also have to take these with a giant grain of salt for two main reasons. First off, 6 verse 14 isn't much different than what we've already seen before in 7 verse 14 day studies for the treatment of ventilator-associated pneumonia. So it's not a huge difference from other data that exist. And then also, this is clearly a distinct patient population, right? With the amount of mortality in the cohort, the length that they were in the hospital and on the vent. So I think you have to keep that in mind as you're trying to think through these results. Awesome, thanks Jason. Can you guys tell pneumonia is Jason's favorite disease day? Actually, CAP <laughs> is Jason's favorite disease day. The next trial presented at ECMID was the ASAP trial, so Australian Surgical Antibiotic Prophylaxis Trial. And what they did is they enrolled at 11 centers over two years in Australia. They had over 4,000 patients, and they looked at patients coming in for hip and knee replacements. They did allow revision surgeries, although the vast majority of patients in the study were there for their first procedure. And they looked at whether or not cefazolin alone or cefazolin plus vancomycin would be superior in terms of eradicating surgical site infections. And so it was placebo-controlled. Those in the cefazolin arm did get a normal saline placebo infusion. This is actually, for me, this was one of the most interesting take-homes from this. The median time from drug infusion to incision was about 28 to 30 minutes for both groups. And so this comes up operationally all the time, is that if you have to give vancomycin, do you have to wait for the infusion to end? And this is a very big implication for OR time and operating procedures. And I will tell you, no one agrees across my healthcare system, even our infection preventionists. But this study, they went ahead and cut at 30 minutes. So if I take anything home, it's that to say, I can use this to maybe show that we can do that with vanco. But no one wants to give vanco pre-op. And so this was hopefully going to show, do we need it or not? Everyone got a gram and a half. This wasn't weight-based dose, it was fixed dose. And this was a, what you would think a consistent population with who would require a hip or a knee replacement. So the average BMI in this study was about 31. About 40% of the patients had an ASA greater than or equal to three. So this is a more obese population, but they were giving that gram and a half for what that's worth. So their primary outcome was a surgical site infection within 90 days of surgery. They looked at all comers, so superficial wound infections and then deep-seated infections and PJIs. 91% of them were, were superficial surgical site infections. And you can see there wasn't a difference between those who got cefazolin alone versus those who got cefazolin plus vancomycin. 
They did have an a priori predefined subgroup of patients that they swabbed everyone that enrolled in the trial pre-op to look for carriage of staphylococcus, MSSA, or MRSA, and then they wanted to evaluate on the back end whether things made a difference in that specific subgroup compared to the total population. They found that it didn't, but only 24 patients had MRSA colonization. About 30% of the whole population had some kind of staph, but only 24 out of over 4,000 had MRSA. And so keep that in mind too when you interpret these data and whether they apply to your center. If you're practicing at Detroit like Jason used to, and hey, Mike, what's up? Like there's no way these data apply to a place that has that kind of MRSA rate, but um, just something to kind of note. So other than no difference in SSIs overall, then they broke this out by joint. And interestingly, in hips, no difference still. But in knee replacement patients, vancomycin was actually associated with an increased risk of infection, um, which is kind of hard to make sense of. You'd expect no difference or maybe less, right? And then in the cefazolin-only group, that it was actually associated with more acute kidney injury. So this is very strange. The authors actually concluded cefazolin plus vancomycin versus cefazolin alone is maybe associated with more infections and knee replacements and less acute kidney injury if you add vanc. And so none of that really makes sense. We had a pretty hard time reconciling these results. But what I actually want to focus on is the hypersensitivity secondary outcome. So rates of hypersensitivities occurred in 0.5%, I think it's 11 patients in the cefazolin only group, and then they were more than double in the vancomycin group. And Dr. Jeffries did an amazing job of walking through a lot of the amazing work she's done on penicillin allergies. But you know, we always talk, patients with a reported history of penicillin allergy, I'm worried about giving them cefazolin because they might have a reaction because they have this history of pen allergy. I almost never hear people bring up how often patients react to VANC. And VANC is very commonly associated with infusion reactions. You can have anaphylaxis to any molecule at any time, and so people have that reaction to vancomycin too. And so, you know, Pen allergy aside, I don't think we bring up enough how you can have these reactions to Vanco. And if your patient has a reaction going into the OR, that can be catastrophic to your schedule and timing and the implications to the system. Like no one wants to delay or cancel a procedure because of some kind of reaction. And we don't talk about it happening with Vanco, but these authors found it more than double. And so I think that's really important. But back to this wonky conclusion. So they basically said it's not superior to placebo. It might cause more infections, and it might cause less AKI. So to be fair, I don't know how to make sense of these data. Do you, do you understand this? Wait, yeah. I just want to be clear what you're trying to tell these people out here, right? So vancomycin leads to more infections, more infections and less but acute kidney pre prevents injury. toxicity. Yeah. Got it. Excellent. It, it's like, yeah, we don't understand this, but I wanted to bring this to you mostly to talk about the vanc hypersensitivity thing. Um, Questions we have, again, these are oral abstracts. We don't know how long they followed these patients for or the time to surgical site infection or really superficial infection can have varying degrees. So we don't. there's a lot to learn here, but I don't necessarily think adding vancomycin to patients with no history of MRSA and no MRSA colonization is common in the United States for joint arthroplasty. And so I think what we do cefazolin alone at my center, and I think I feel okay continuing to do cefazolin alone, but this is like a big shrug moji, this, this study, but notably VANC can cause hypersensitivity. But protect against AKI. Yeah. <laughs> Just checking. Yeah. I can't even, I don't have a comeback. Okay, so moving on to the next, these are two RCTs actually, so Jepotidison for uncomplicated urinary tract infection. And so I graduated from Auburn University. These studies were looked at in two very similar global placebo-controlled non-inferiority trials called Eagle 2 and Eagle 3. So for the next few slides, we will have a lot of Auburn 
War Eagle references in War here. Eagle, and I think baby. there's some Auburn people in the crowd, so War Eagle, guys. All right, so this drug, so Jepo is a cool drug. So this is a novel first-in-class oral antibiotic. It does inhibit DNA gyrase and toporisomerase 4, but it is unique to fluoroquinolones. It has a different mechanistic effect. It binds to a different site. And so they did study it in these two large global RCTs. The dose of Jepo is 1,500 milligrams twice a day for five days. It comes as two 750 milligram tablets. They compared that to nitrofurantoin, 100 milligrams twice a day for five days, and they enrolled at over 100 locations across the world. The primary outcome, they looked at a test of cure visit between days 10 and 13 after enrollment, and the primary outcome for this trial, so this, is, this was only in females, adolescents, and adults, uncomplicated UTI, the FDA now requires for UTI studies this endpoint of therapeutic success that is a combination of clinical cure, which is complete resolution of signs and symptoms, and microbiological clearance. So that, those two combined make this therapeutic success endpoint. This is kind of like Jason was talking about earlier with breakpoints, and we're holding things to a higher standard and a better bar, which is good, but sometimes that's challenging for new drugs to enter the market because they're held to a higher standard than what old drugs were evaluated at. But here we're comparing it to an older antibiotic in nitrofurantoin, so you can see these rates. In Eagle 2, Jepo was non-inferior to nitrofurantoin, and you can see the success rates there. And in Eagle 3, it was actually superior. And then when you break it out into clinical success and micro success, those percentages are higher, again, because you had to have both to be a therapeutic success, which is why those numbers look lower. In this study, about half the patient population were over the age of 50, and 40% of them had had a UTI previously. And so I think that's really important because JEPO has potent in vitro activity against ESBLs and also against fluoroquinolone and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole-resistant E. coli. And this is a space we sorely need a drug, right? In the beautiful 2019 AMR reports that came out before COVID, we had made tremendous gains in removing some of these multidrug resistant organisms. We saw KPC going down, acinetobacter going down, pseudomonas going down. I know COVID changed that, but before these were the pro this was the progress we were making. But what went up was community acquired ESBLs. And that is because of community-associated transmission, and it's a lot of nursing home residents, it's a lot of these patients that are colonized with ESBL, club, and E. coli, largely urinary sources. So this is a space that we do sorely need an oral antibiotic, and so I think this is really exciting, and the population they enrolled is reflective of that. Advanced age and recurrent UTI are two of the biggest risk factors for having a multidrug-resistant organism in the urine. So overall, non-inferior in one trial, superior in the other. This is exciting news. You should look out for the FDA submission imminently. If this gets approved, this drug should probably be available next year. Thing to note and counsel your patients on, there were a decent amount of adverse events. So 35% in the JEPO group, 22% in the nitrofurantoin group, and these are largely GI-related. So diarrhea was most common, with rates between 14 and 18% in the different trials. So that's exciting. So yeah. it's cool. Only time to get a new drug. That's awesome. And, and I, we were talking about this preparing for it. We we're trying to contextualize 14 to 18% diarrhea. And, and again, how are we going to talk to patients? How are we going to talk to families? And, and for me, it's like that's augmenting, right? So think about that. That's a very similar situation. So that helps contextualize what we're looking at there. 
And now we're going to talk about a study that I'm excited to present. And maybe, if we're lucky, it will guarantee that I'm never invited back here again. <laughs> this is the simplified trial. So we, we heard Dr. Moring talk about de-escalation. It was a great presentation. And, and one thing she kept bringing up over and over and over again is that we really don't have data that, one, it's okay to do that, and two, there's any benefit in the world to doing it. <laughs> this RCT, the simplified trial, wanted to ask that question. So basically, these were patients. There were about 330 patients in the trial. They were started on empirically on an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam. They had to have a monomicrobial Enterobacter alleys bloodstream infection. They had to be randomized within 48 hours of starting that anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam. And their isolate had to be susceptible to that drug. And then at least one thing that they could de-escalate to. So if they met those criteria, they were then randomized to either continue the anti-pseudomonal, as you're going to see, largely Piptazo or Meripenem, or get de-escalated. So they really wanted to see, is this safe, is this effective, is this good for patients? So what outcomes did they look at? So the primary was a clinical cure-based definition. The secondary was 60-day mortality, rates of recurrence, and adverse events. But what's really cool about this study, as you can see below there, they also had a door outcome, so a desirability of outcome ranking. And I won't read to you every single piece of that, but what they looked at as part of that, because why do we de-escalate, right? We think it might decrease the rate of C. diff, of adverse events, of MDRO colonization in the future. So they actually had a door ranking to actually bring that into play. And so to see if that actually held true in a de-escalation study. So what did the population look like? And all I will say for that first bullet is it's, it's what you think an Enterobacter alleys bloodstream infection study is going to look like. Largely urinary or biliary source, largely E. coli or Klebsiella pneumoniae. So you might be asking yourselves, what did they get de-escalated to? So about half of the patients got de-escalated to a second or third generation cephalosporin. About 30% got de-escalated to either AMP or clav. And then you had some Cipro, some Erda, and just a little bit of trim sulfa in there as well. For the group that stayed on their empiric regimen, predominantly Piptase, but a good chunk of marrow in there as well. So again, a good comparison to be looking at in this study. So what did they find? Clinical cure, mortality, similar between the two groups. That is the good news. Look on the right side of the screen. That's your door outcome that's incorporating resistance, C. diff. And you can see there, C. diff only occurred in one patient in each arm. And what you saw in this study, again, we don't know all the details yet, but absolutely no impact on any of those things with de-escalation. For those of you that aren't familiar with door ranking, 0.50 means it's a 50-50 split. It's basically the zero of that outcome from that. So what does it mean? What do I take from this? To be fair, we don't know a lot of details yet. In particular, we don't know all the ADEs that they even assessed. We don't know how they looked for MDRO colonization. Did they swab patients, or were they just looking at clinical cultures? That's going to be a big difference in how likely you are to identify a resistant pathogen. We don't know how long they treated, so what the duration of therapy even was in these patients. But from what we know at this point so far, it would appear 
that de-escalation in an Enterobacter aureus bloodstream infection from an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam to a more narrow spectrum agent is safe, it is effective, and it's potentially not the best use of our time. Because again, if it's not doing those things we say it's going to do, that is not the best use of our time. And so I think that that's probably a good place that we can transition to things that might be. Yeah, and before, since I feel like we just crushed souls and you guys are probably like, just don't even finish the talk because this is the stewardship meeting. I think we have really, really good data to show shortening antibiotic exposures helps patients, right? So shortening durations of therapy is meaningful. IV to PO is probably meaningful. De-escalation, we have... It looks like pretty good data to show that it might not be the best use of our time, but play this out in your head, right? Most hospitals in our country, you're not getting your final susceptibilities until day like three or four, right? Sometimes day five, depending on if you have an on-site lab or not. So if I have this patient in this Enterobacterialis bacteremia, and they're on cefepime or piptazo, and then I get my susceptibility on day four that says it's ceftriaxone susceptible and I de-escalate, but then they go home on day five on Cipro, is giving that patient one day of ceftriaxone and exposing him to three total antibiotics better than just waiting until you can do an oral or whatever and just saying do seven days total. And that we don't know and probably not. And so I think chasing that de-escalation for in these patients would it really would only play out to one day, maybe not as meaningful. Now, Jason's got really nice data with rapid diagnostics showing that on day one, if you can go from piptazo to ceftriaxone based on what your rapid diagnostic system tells you, maybe that's more meaningful. And that's why I think we definitely need to know time course and total exposures and things like that that we don't have. But I mean, Dr. Mooring said it too, we just don't have good data to show that de-escalation impacts any of these outcomes. So we hate to, hate to be the bearers of bad news. But yeah, let's talk about good stewardship interventions, things that are amazing that you should go do right now because they make a difference and they save lives. <laughs> so the first is none other than our Susan Davis and her team at Henry Ford, who had a beautiful grant from CDC to look at pharmacist's impact on antibiotics at transitions of care and discharge. There's a ton of amazing pharmacists and friends of pharmacy on this paper. It's beautiful. The best things are in the supplements always, and they have a gorgeous supplemental that goes with this that walks through all of their guidelines, all of their pathways, so you can help take this home. But what they did is they had five hospitals in Michigan, one academic hospital, four community sites. They did this intervention on 17 different units in a step wedge process. So they rolled it out. Unit one, hospital one, and then went along the way over years looking at this. And they positioned pharmacists in this transitions of care model. So rather than patients just go home, whatever, all these antibiotic prescriptions on discharge. And we've seen this. We've seen these data at Duke and Dason. We've seen these data out of other cohorts in Michigan, Kaiser, all over, that most antibiotic overuse occurs at discharge and in the outpatient setting, right? You get three to five days inpatient, then you get a prescription for seven days to go home because it feels weird to prescribe one pill, right? So there's a lot of opportunity here, and this is probably where we should be focusing our inpatient stewardship efforts to make the biggest impact on patient care. So what they did is they built this base model, and that's the middle column, and then I love this, the right is all the things they modified and adapted as they rolled out to different sites, and they said, okay, you know, different people communicate different ways, and different electronic health record structures might be able to trigger different things. So they essentially incorporated stewardship into the discharge process. So stewardship pharmacists and clinical pharmacists, some of their non-ID trained people, they trained their medicine pharmacists and what have you, to review any patient going home on oral antibiotics who had an uncomplicated infection. So these were mostly pneumonias, UTIs, skin and soft tissue infections, some intra-abdominal. And the patient couldn't discharge until the pharmacist reviewed it. 
They wrote notes to communicate the antibiotic plan. They worked with the care managers on the unit to get the discharge planning list and things like this. And the thing I love the most that they did is they had their outpatient retail pharmacies page the inpatient stewardship team if they got a prescription sent to the outpatient pharmacy for antibiotics, and then they looked at that patient's discharge summary and there wasn't something from the stewardship team about the antibiotic plan, then the retail pharmacy was the stopgap to say, whoa, 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 stewardship didn't look at this. They called them and they reviewed it, which is amazing. The other awesome thing they did was pharmacists were pending the medicines to the provider. So the pharmacist went in and entered the discharge medication prescription, right dose, right drug, right duration, hit send, provider co-signed it rather than the provider doing this. And there's data out of this out of the University of Wisconsin too on medicine units where pharmacists penned antibiotics to providers, all medicines actually, like the pharmacists do the first step of the med rec and it significantly decreases readmissions, improves appropriateness of all medications. And so I think this is a really amazing workflow if you can get your teams on board with it. And so again, the best things are in the supplements. Far more detail of what they did is in there, but this is really, really incredible work and really where pharmacists are making a huge impact and should be practicing. They had 400 patients in their, each group pre-post, and no surprise, in the post-intervention group, way more likely to have optimal antibiotics. This was true in community and academic sites. They had less antibiotic-related adverse events. They actually had less readmissions and then no difference in clinical resolution or mortality, which is good. I think sometimes when we publish stewardship literature, we like to say we like shorten duration of antibiotics, but we forget to say that we didn't hurt the patients. And so the balancing <laughs> measures of this caused no harm and did a lot of good are in there. This is a beautiful paper and congratulations to the Henry Ford team and all for implementing such an innovative practice model. So, okay. first off, Henry Ford team, that is really cool stuff. It's like great. the opposite of what I was saying before, that, that's a great intervention and that's awesome. And I'm gonna talk about something now that's very near and dear to my heart and it's great that Nikki is in the audience here so she can enjoy this moment with me. So for those of you who have been veterans to this conference, I actually spoke here in 2018. I had a debate with Dr. Ken Klinker, it was a lot of fun. So we were pro-conning whether or not you should give extended infusions of beta-lactams. And I made this passionate plea, I won't bore you with the details, but that every anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam should always be an extended infusion. And I ran my mouth for 15 minutes or, and, and tried to make a bunch of points. And I will tell you that when I was in Detroit, we actually implemented this. We did it routinely. If you get an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam for the last decade, you're getting max dose, you're getting extended infusion. That's standard of care. And then enter a great PGY1 resident that I had, one Nikki Tran who's sitting right there in the third row. She said, Jason, I want this to be my project. I want to see if this actually improves the outcomes of patients. And so she did that. And she actually presented these data here at this meeting. And now I'm talking about that publication. I can't tell you how good a job she did on this project. So it was all patients with gram-negative monomicrobial bloodstream infections. Again, any organism, and much like you would think, that was largely Enterobacter alleys in this study. They had to be started on in vitro active anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams within 24 hours from that culture, and they had to be kept on that drug for at least 48 hours. And really, the goal was you wanted to see, did getting that upfront extended infusion beta-lactam, because the hypothesis was that you could get some pharmacodynamic advantages to doing that, did that improve outcomes in patients? And so this study duration was over eight years, because it was a pre-post study, and to get patients for a study like this, it's a long process. 
And so Nikki comes to me and she says, you know, we need to make sure that this study population is right. And so she wanted to do a matched analysis. And I'm a big fan of matching, so that sounds like a really good idea. So what she did is she matched patients who got extended infusion to intermittent infusion based off of four, four criteria, and these are all exact matches. So looking at severity of illness, presence or absence of severe sepsis or septic shock, ICU status, yes, no. The source of the bacteremia, was it from the urine or was it somewhere else? And the infecting pathogen, was it Pseudomonas or was it any other organism in that situation? And just to tell you what she did for her PGY1 project, so to inspire people to give it your all for these projects, she reviewed no less than 7,000 positive blood cultures in order to get 134 exact matches in this study. So thank you for all of those days you spent trying to do this. But the hypothesis was, if we can get a dose-optimized therapy on board, we can get patients better faster. And so those were the outcomes. And so if you look at the primary outcomes of that study, what Nikki showed was extended infusion beta-lactam decreased time to clinical stability to defervescence and leukocytosis resolution, all of those by about a day on average. And if you do that, theoretically, that should get people out of the hospital faster. And she actually showed that you were able to decrease length of stay, ICU length of stay, the rate of failure, and recurrence by giving the drugs as extended infusions. And I, one thing I want to really highlight here, the majority of isolates in this study were uber-susceptible Enterobacter alleys that had MICs to drugs like Cefepime, Meropenem, and Piptazo of less than whatever we had on our panel at the time. So they were extremely susceptible isolates, but still showing that benefit. There was no difference in mortality because only two patients in the trial actually died. So that would have been impossible to show a difference there. And what was really interesting about her study is that what she found was that this result held true. It was remarkably consistent regardless of baseline renal function. So again, extended infusions even helped in patients who had creatinine clearances less than 30, which has always been a question area for us. Where they were at in the hospital, ICU, yes or no, what the source was, or what the study drug. So congratulations, Nikki. This is a great study. I think this is impactful. Absolutely. And I think for all the students, trainees, fellows, residents, new practitioners, what have you, seriously, your Mad ID posters become some of the most impactful data because this is a meeting where we can all exchange ideas and discussions. When I first saw Nikki's poster, I took the poster and I used that in 2019 to implement dose optimization at UPMC because the data at that time were only in ICU patients and a lot of the pushback I got was like, we'll only do extended infusions with resistant isolates in the ICU. And it was Nikki's poster that pushed all my providers over the line to say, okay, whole house, every patient, every time, and we've been doing that for the past four years. So thank you, Nikki. And thank you, Vivian. Vivian, unfortunately, had to leave yesterday, but Vivian Tsai is a fellow in South Carolina right now. She was my student, and this was her P4 project. Uh, so her P4 year, we decided that I just like was going to get rid of IV clindamycin. It's actually now on shortage, so this is a great time to go home and do this, okay? Uh, so I wanted to get clinda out of every order set in the hospital. So we did that with surgical prophylaxis, and then we went to NSTI. 
And so we looked at clindamycin plus vancomycin with standard gram-negative therapy and anaerobic therapy, that's usually piptazo for this indication, versus linazolid replacing both the clindamycin and the vancomycin. So you still have your MRSA coverage, you have your toxin suppression in a protein synthesis inhibitor, and then again, combining with standard gram-negative therapy. So Vivian, as a student, she went through all these patient charts of patients who were admitted with Fournier's gangrene or NSTI and looked at uh, their outcomes, whether or not they're on serotonergic agents. It actually gets better. Another author on this study is Peyton Skinker. She was a P3 at the time, so she looked only at the serotonergic drugs that, in the chart that was appropriate for her at that age. So layered learning, Vivian mentored that other student in this. It makes me so happy how many trainees are on this publication over how many years this took. And then in May of 2020, we went live with our updated NSTI order set that changed our empiric recommendation to piptazo plus linazolid. We have come to the time when we have enough post data to evaluate that. So a resident named Josh Durazio, who's the first author on this paper, he is a non-traditional resident at UPMC. He did this over two years, P1 and P2 year, because he also looked at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of charts. Not 7,000, Nikki's like next level amazing. But um, so my resident over the past couple of years went through these for our post analysis. We ended up with 62 matched pairs. They're also very robustly matched because I was mentored by Jason and I know better than to send him a paper that he's gonna tear apart in peer review. So a really robust matching process and what we found is that patients that got what we consider traditional NSTI therapy versus piptazo and linazolid, no difference in mortality, no difference in C. diff, although rare, but it is numerically higher in the Clinda group, significantly less AKI in patients who received linazolid, and when you look at a composite of death, C. diff, or AKI at 30 days, significantly less in patients that got piptazo and linazolid. This is a hard disease state to study because it's a surgical disease, so we had really tight inclusion criteria. They had to go to the OR and have confirmed, documented NSTI per the OR op note within 24 hours, because if you're not appropriately surgical managed, the antibiotics aren't gonna do much, so that's why we did that here, and that's why mortalities are endpoint. There's not a lot, there's not a lot of other clinical gains to be made there, um, but, so we feel very, very good about this, and we just went live at all UPMC hospitals with this order set. So we started at one hospital, got these data. Now that we've seen this, we've rolled that out to all of our hospitals, and it was so timely, because we did that right as Clinda went on shortage, and I was just like, and you can't even argue with me, because we don't even have the other drug. <laughs> um, so, um, so again, excited. This, this went online two days ago in OFID, so um, it's available for you to look at, but really just tremendous work by three fabulous trainees that also were intimately involved in this meeting. So. Awesome, yay for mad. Stop using clindamycin, I agree wholeheartedly. Hopefully it won't come back. Yeah, shortage forever. Okay, um, to round out, we're almost done. We have a few heavy hitting topics. The rest of these papers have about one slide each and it's kind of a summary of some stewardship things we think you can take home that have high impact in our opinion. So this was the Candicept trial. It was published in just last summer. Kayla Stover presented this at ID Week in the clinical trials that should change your practice. She had the antifungal section of that. She did an amazing job. Kayla was also at this meeting yesterday. But the Candicept trial, the take -home, what they did is they randomized ICU patients that had sepsis, undifferentiated sepsis, and they had some risk factor for invasive fungal infection. So TPN, long antibiotic exposures, GI surgery, your classic risk factors for IFI and they randomized them to either get beta-D-glucan monitoring or to not. The punchline is there is absolutely no difference in any clinical outcome for that, but 50% of the patients that had beta-D-glucan monitoring ended up getting antifungals versus only 6% of patients who did not. 
This tracks, Greg Eschenhauer spoke at this meeting last year and went through this, that we really don't have good outcomes data actually for IFI and undifferentiated sepsis, but we do know that none of these things work. Beta-D glucans have an amazingly high false positive rate in this patient population, and it doesn't impact outcomes. And so what I want you to do is go home and say, we are not gonna allow people to order beta-D glucans in the ICU except under very strict rules, and you can come up with what those rules are that make sense for your ID colleagues and your stewardship team and your, and your GI colleagues and things like that, but it's a, it's a test that we way overuse, and this is an area of diagnostic stewardship that can, one, help your lab by sending way less of these tests, and then, two, help your team by using way less antifungals. Other kind of diagnostic-y, sample-y, help your micro labs and your clinical labs like you as a stewardship team interventions that are beneficial is this data out of Children's of Colorado. It was published in September of 2022. And they look at endotracheal aspirates that are sent. This is more of a problem, I would think, in peds hospitals, but it definitely happens in adult units and rehab units and patients that are chronically trached. So they looked at these patients who had these endotracheal aspirates sent that are just persistently sampled, and then they looked at patients that were followed according to how ASM, the American Society of Microbiology, how they recommend micro-reporting, which is essentially if you get a culture that's a lot of junk, report it as junk and move on. <laughs> Or you could have an attending that calls and complains and says they want every single bug speciated out, and then you do it because you have to. And then seven days later, you've been able to plate all those organisms and get a result, and you see there's one colony of Pseudomonas there, and then your patient gets 21 days of Piptazo, right? This happens. And so essentially what they said is if we followed the guidelines that the micro gods have put into place for us, patients would get way less antibiotics. They didn't quantify this to clinical outcomes. This was more of a diagnostic over-reporting paper, but I think this really nicely shows the problem and can help you with some initiatives in terms of improving sampling, reporting, and helping your microlab have way less work to do. Okay, the time has come. We're almost done. Other important stuff is other quite the category. Other important stuff. So this is actually a really cool study. This just came out. This is really hot off the press. This is an IJAA ahead of print. And what they were looking at in this study, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday when we were talking about Piptazo and breakpoints and all that stuff. What they were looking at here were patients who had non-derepressed AMPC bloodstream infections or pneumonias. And basically, so they were ceftriaxone, third-generation cephalosporin susceptible isolates. What they wanted to do is they wanted to compare definitive therapy with our gold standard, which is either cefepime or the carbapenems. They wanted to look at third-generation cephalosporins, and they wanted to look at piperacillin plus minus tazobactam, because some of these places in France have piperacillin alone, and they can do that. And so really trying to ask this question, and what was really great about this is that this is a really hard question to ask retrospectively. We know this from the ESBL literature. We know this from other literature in this topic. If you think about it, remember we talked yesterday about confounding by indication. There's a huge amount of this here, right? Because if you're afraid for a patient, you're going to give them the thing you know works, right? You're going to give them cefepime. You're going to give them a carbapenem in that scenario. The patients who are going to get the other agents might look significantly different, right? They're already getting better. They're not as sick, all of those things. But what this study is actually really good, I see that rogue definitive treatment there, which is kind of funny to look at. What made this study really good is they had some strict inclusion-exclusion criteria for en enrollment into this, into this study. And because they had so many sites, 
they actually do this really robustly. I was actually surprised when I read that because I didn't think it was, it was possible to do it this well. So I really encourage you to take a look at these data. But again, these were patients who had bloodstream infection or pneumonia with quote-unquote wild-type AMPC producing enterobacter alleles. And all that means is that they had one of the AMPC bugs and it wasn't derepressed. So you didn't have high-level cephalosporin resistance. And what they wanted to do in this study is they wanted to compare three groups. Our gold standard, cefepimer, the carbapenems, third-generation cephalosporins, which a lot of us might have some issues with, and piperacillin tazobactam. But what's really cool about this study is look at those inclusion criteria. You had to have that definitive therapy started within 48 hours of index culture, and it had to be continued for at least five days. So it was really looking at this question in, I think, a really nice way. So the outcomes, the primary outcomes, so they were comparing these different therapies to our gold standard of cefepime or meropenem. The primary outcome was 30-day mortality. The secondary outcome was what they called AMPC-related treatment failure. And essentially what that means is that while on therapy, they selected for derepressed mutants and it made the provider have to change therapy to target that. So again, I think that's the question that we're interested in. And so that was the secondary outcome. So what did they find? So primary outcome, 30-day mortality, no difference in any of those three groups. <laughs> the secondary outcome was that AMPC-related treatment failure. And what they saw were significantly higher rates in third-generation cephalosporin, and actually, maybe not to the same degree, but also with piperacillin plus minus tazobactam. And so you're talking about a six or a threefold increase, and you can see the percentages there as well. I would consider those significant findings. But like we always say here at Bad ID, the best stuff is always in the supplement. So remember what happened in this study, right? You had to get the patient in the study within 48 hours, and they had to get therapy for at least five days with the study drug. And so what they looked at is they did sensitivity analyses based off of what patients got in that first 48-hour window, right? How does that impact these outcomes? And so if you look at the middle part of this, so the white, these are patients who got empiric therapy with cefepime or carbapenem and were either continued on that or de-escalated to a third-generation cephalosporin or piperacillin tazobactam. And what you'll find is there was no association with doing that, de-escalating over there, and mortality, but that's where there was a huge association. So if you look at the right side of your screen, that's where there was a huge association with this treatment failure. So even though they got that gold standard up front and it didn't kill the patients, de-escalating them to one of these drugs are really the population where you saw this treatment failure. Now look at the bottom part of that. These are patients who got empiric therapy with a third-generation cephalosporin or piperacillin tazobactam and were either transitioned, so escalated up to meropenem or cefepime, or they were continued on that therapy. And what's really interesting about that is in patients who got empiric therapy with a third-generation cephalosporin or piperacillin, it seems there's a huge signal there that if you continue them on that therapy, look at those first columns there, there's a huge signal toward increase in mortality. 
So again, look closely at these data. It might be a little bit more than just the treatment failure. But again, these are subgroups, they're small numbers, so take it with a grain of salt. But there's some interesting signals there. And then just one more thing I want you to see in this study, and this I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around personally, because this is potentially impactful. So in this study, they did not talk to Sam before they did this trial, so they did not only include heck yes organisms. They included those organisms that we said you don't got to worry about, Serratia and Morganella. And oh, guess what? The rate of failure, meaning selection for derepressed mutants requiring therapy modification, was actually pretty similar with those as well. And so these are very interesting findings. It'll be interesting to see how we incorporate that into what we think of when we think of AMPC bugs. And so what does it mean? In my opinion, this adds evidence to not use third-generation cephalosporins or piperacillin tazobactam for patients that have serious infections due to these AMPC bugs because you can select um, for derepressed mutants and have issues that come because of that. I think that supplement is very interesting that suggests that empiric and then continued use might actually lead to increased mortality, whereas even if you de-escalate off of a carbapenem to one of these agents, you're still at increased risk for selecting for these derepressed mutants, which I think is very important contribution to the literature. And then finally, like I just said on that last slide, this is the first real evidence that I've ever seen that suggests this concept might apply to serratia and to morganella. So we're gonna have to pay attention to what that looks like moving forward. Yeah, thanks Jason. And this comes up all the time across our UPMC hospitals. I get this call once a week, Aaron, do I really have to use cefepime or carbapenem for an enterobacter? And the answer is yes, at least that's what I would give my mom. Hi mom, I would give you that. Um, so well, what the, about your like dad the too, answer, right? <laughs> so, the answer is yes, right? And I think we have more and more data to say that. That's what the guidelines say, so here we are. Okay, to wrap up, last two studies. So first, this is extremely exciting. And when I went into ID, I did not think viruses were that cool. And I realize now that all I talk about are viruses and I get very excited about them. But how many of you got like wrecked by RSV this year at your institutions? It was horrible. Yeah, it was horrible. RSV is really bad. And I think we just don't talk about it enough or we don't practice in peds hospitals or what have you or we're dealing with COVID. But RSV is terrible. People are very, very, ill and we have a vaccine now so this was just approved a couple of days ago we put the slide in here before it was approved and I thought it was coming but they approved it faster than I thought which is amazing uh, so we have an RSV vaccine there are a lot of people in this space right now. These are the GSK data that you're looking at on this slide. They were published in New England in February of 2023. Moderna is also developing a vaccine, but they're developing an mRNA vaccine. I know that like gives you PTSD, but they're using that technology to look into other viruses, which is amazing science. And then Pfizer is also developing a vaccine that's similar to this GSK one, which is this pre-fusion F protein targeted vaccine. This GSK study that you're looking at was only studied in adult patients aged 60 and older. It's shown safe and very effective, so this is really, really exciting, and that's the take-home. The Pfizer vaccine is also being studied in pregnant mothers looking at then passing immunity to their babies, so that's a cool space to watch as well, and we'll hopefully see that data come out soon as well as the Moderna data. There are a few other companies in the space Janssen had a, an RSV vaccine, but they actually stopped developing it, even though their data were promising just because it is kind of a crowded space. But all in all, this is really, really, really exciting. And then last, but certainly not least, this really nice paper in JNO that just came out from our friends in Canada. Kevin Gary left, but 
hello to all our Canadians, <laughs> looking at the association of linazolid with serotonin syndrome. So they looked at this Canadian database that had over 1,100 adult patients age 66 or older that received a prescription for linazolid. And so it's linazolid exposure is kind of your first look. And then of that patient population, they said how many of them also had other serotonergic agents, particularly SSRIs, and about 20% of the population also received that. And if they received both, the median duration of overlap was seven days, which makes sense, right? You get a treatment course for a skin and soft tissue infection or something like that, but they didn't stop the SSRI, they continued both. The primary outcome was serotonin syndrome that required a healthcare visit, either inpatient or outpatient. And I guess there's a rule in Canada with their PHI and their health reporting that if your event occurs less than six times, they can't report the exact number because then you could like find those humans, I guess. So we don't know how many cases of serotonin syndrome occurred, but it was less than six, which is so exquisitely rare. And so this continues to make the point that has been made over and over again in recent publications that serotonin syndrome is just so so rare, even in patients that are taking multiple serotonergic agents. So what do I think we should take home from this? I think we should stop avoiding linazolid because of serotonin syndrome. It is safe, it's effective, it's a good thing to do. So our friends at Michigan actually did this for you. They have all of their stewardship guidelines are available for free on the Michigan Stewardship website, in case you didn't know that. So thank you, Jason. Thank you, Greg and Sam and everyone else at Michigan. They just released this document, so you can download it and use it. We have a version of this that we made at UPMC too that I'm happy to share that essentially walks through the literature walks through why this is probably not a thing and encourages people to use linazolid even when drug interactions exist. I will tell you though, when I brought this to UPMC and we brought this up at our stewardship subcommittee across the system, a lot of my very good pharmacists at my community hospitals expressed very reasonable concerns that they were like, I get this and I do ID and it's okay, but how am I supposed to go train everyone on my staff to just click verify on a contraindicated medicine? Because when you look this up and up to date, or Lexicomp or whatever, it's gonna say methadone and linazolid are contraindicated and pharmacists had reasonable concerns about that. It's not that they don't believe us or read the data, it's just that you're clicking verify. It says contraindicated. So we worked with legal, we had to go through all of that. That might be something you have to do. But all in all, I think this is worth it because I think we avoid linazolid far too often. And I actually forgot to mention this in Vivian and Josh and Peyton's data, but a, a collateral benefit of switching to linazolid instead of Clinda and Vanco for NSTI that I did not even think about is that our continuous infusion fentanyl in the ICUs dropped precipitously, like 70 to 10% because they were concerned about the drug interaction. So all of a sudden we can actually awaken patients in the ICU and not over sedate them because we're giving linazolid and it was like, Whoa, also more patients went home on oral antibiotics. So love this. There's a lot of other stuff we could talk about in the linazolid space, but I think we'll end there. Oh, and we do review these periodically on breakpoints. So these are some episodes that go through a lot of other literature. If you're interested, we do deep dive more into ID week over a couple episodes we released in December. And with that, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. Thank you so much to our friends at Mad ID for recording this session live so that we could bring you this special podcast episode today. If you want to check out 2022 Mad ID, there's also a Breakpoints episode from last year with the top papers from that year's conference. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, myself, and Jason Pogue, who was our other speaker today. This episode was produced by Dr. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard. Our production team includes Veronica Zafont and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SADP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.